Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. Welcome to a very special edition of the Investor Download, where your host today is Schroeder's CEO, Peter Harrison. And the topic is all things AI. Join Peter as he talks to Michael Basker, one of the authors of The Coming Wave, a 2023 bestseller which critics have described as vital, terrifying and unmissable. Michael visited Schroeder's London office to record the conversation which was joined by Niels Road, Charlotte Wood and Alex Tedder, each of whom in their different roles at Schroeder's is passionate about AI and brings their own angle to the topic. The Coming Wave was one of six books shortlisted for the 2023 Financial Times and Schroeder's Business Book of the Year. Its other author, AI entrepreneur, Mustafa Suleiman, is co-founder of DeepMind and Inflection AI. In the book, Suleiman and Basker warn about the dangers of innovations such as generative AI, synthetic biology and quantum computing, and assess how and if these dangers could be contained. Enjoy the show. I'm delighted to be joined today by Michael Basker, co-author of this fabulous book, The Coming Wave. Um, couldn't be more timely in terms of understanding both AI and synthetic biology. I'm also joined by several colleagues, Niels Rode, uh, CIO of our Schroeder's Capital Business, Charlotte Wood, uh, head of our innovations group, and Alex Tedder, head of global and thematic equities. So I'm looking forward to a fantastic conversation. And perhaps, Michael, if I could start the questioning. Um, ChatGPT4, I think, was the, or ChatGPT generally, was the fastest adoption of any consumer product in history. When you started playing with ChatGPT4, were you surprised by just how good it was? Um, yes, I was. Um, and, you know, it, it's easy to forget, not only with um, GPT4, but GPT3.5, 3, all of the large language models that, that are out there, what, what we actually see is that people set these benchmarks and they set tests for them um, that are actually really hard. You know, so before uh, sorry, GPT-4 came out, people were saying things like, oh, you could never get um, a large language model to exhibit spatial reasoning or something like that, whatever it is, or, or to work out some sort of complex reasoning task. And then, bam, GPT-4 comes out and it does it. And that's just one example. And there are countless examples of this, of where people say, Ah, oh, but this is the thing that, that GPT-4 won't be able to do, and it does it. And, you know, in many ways, this is the story of AI over the last decade or so, is that people set these really tough bars for it to clear, and then it clears that, and we're, we're stunned for about five minutes. And then we say, oh, but it can't actually do this, and just sort of forget how, you know, it has done incredible things. So I was surprised by GPT-4. If I push myself and, and play with it and other systems, it still stuns me. Um, but it's also just interesting how quickly we adapt and how quickly we get used to something that two years ago was a technological impossibility. And that's probably a bit of a lesson there. Yeah. And do you want to just spend a moment speculating on what it means for workforces, for society? Because that's the first question. How disruptive is this going to be and over what time frame? Um, to me, there's no doubt it is enormously disruptive. It, you know, what, what we're doing is we're taking one of the core attributes of humanity, the basic thing of our species, intelligence, and we're commoditizing it. 
we're making it almost kind of infinite in, in plentitude. Um, everyone um, is going to have an extraordinary amount of capability to do things, um, to know things, to achieve things, a huge amount of support. Um, and that, that's just one of the biggest transitions ever. You know, I, I think the way to think about this is, um, you know, as, as a CEO of a large company, you've got access to a lot of things that most people don't have, a legal team, an HR team, um, advisors, it's all, you know, enables you to do a job that, that has kind of huge global scope. But right now, there are a handful of CEOs and world leaders who have access to this. Now imagine everyone has access to something like that. That is a very different world to the one that we live in today. Um, and the reason it's, it's disruptive is that we have no idea what that actually means for the economy, for security, for creativity. Um, almost any area you think about can be supercharged by the ability for people to ha have a kind of team on their side that is helping, but then also by something that we think that is coming very quickly, artificial capable intelligence, where it can do things for you. You know, just as, as um, teams and companies can achieve goals for the company, what about if everyone has that, you know, their AI, their AI agent can go and do things. Um, I mean, I think that's broadly an incredibly exciting thing. You know, we, we live at a time where growth is hard to come by, economic growth. We live at a time where, you know, health outcomes aren't really improving. It costs billions of dollars to develop a new drug. Um, there are all kinds of challenges that we know our societies are facing. And, you know, I think everyone can broadly sense that we need something to break us out of this um, sort of local equilibrium that we've hit. And this is probably it. But at the same time, of course, it means that all kinds of goals stand a better chance of being achieved. And there are people who have bad goals. There are people who have goals that cut across purposes to, let's say, the mainstream of society, whatever it is. Um, what I think that it does mean, though, is, is just disruption. The status quo, one way or another, probably is going to change fairly drastically. I think in a time scale of anywhere over the next two to five years to 20 years. It's certainly not more than that. And I think it's just worth saying, um, there's always a lot of hype around new technologies. There's a lot of hype around AI right now. Um, some of all of this is going to be that. But equally, there's a real danger in just dismissing all of this as, as hype. I think there really is a very significant shift with these tools. Michael, what I find amazing is the progress just, uh, over the last 12 months. ChatGPT was launched a bit more than a year ago. And then if you see what, what has changed and how which additional features have been added and how it has the performance increased, and if you extrapolate that, how it will continue to develop and other tools, and it's not only about text, it's about videos, it's about photos, it's about music, it's, it's, it's uh, everything. Um, if, if you extrapolate that development, what does it mean for education? So what should, what should people learn today that will, be, that will help them 10 years from now with, with this technology coming? Well, so ed education is a really interesting one because um, there's just a, a sense now in education that this is the, you know, I, I, a sense in education, like in almost every vertical, everywhere, that this is the kind of main thing that they need to grapple with. Um, and the other day I went to this conference about AI in uh, education and everyone was saying, um, how, do, how are we going to change the curriculum to address AI? You know, how are we going to kind of build this into the curriculum? And actually, um, the point I said is, 
the whole the whole thing with AI is that a curriculum goes out of the window. How we can you change education, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> it, exactly, because it actually um, holds out the promise for kind of hyper-customization of, an, of, of uh, education, right? You know, every child, or, or rather probably as it will be, every human being, because the idea that, that education is just a phase in life is almost certainly finishing. We're all going to be educated all the time, and already, you know, probably all of us have used AI just to learn about things, and actually it's helped us understand something new, and, and we're already seeing that. So the idea of um, a curriculum, of just sitting there and learning um, one set of things, is probably going to go um, sooner or later. We're going to have far more tailored education. Um, it's going to be far more about what works for a given individual. I think there'll be some things that we'll agree, you know, just has to happen as a society. And interestingly enough, we'll still definitely need schools because, you know, what, what's actually clear, and again, this is something we see with AI, I think it shows us what's valuable. What you learn about at school maybe isn't necessarily um, the Romans or, you know, the photosynthesis. What you actually learn is um, how to sit down and be quiet for 10 minutes, how to, you know, negotiate with your friends in the playground, how to kind of become a human being in the broader mm -hmm. sense. And all of that aspect of education is surely going to become even more important. The fact that, you know, the fact that you're just there in a peer group. Um, but what's, what's definitely going to change is everything that you need to learn is going to be somehow probably mediated via an AI that is hyper-tailored to you and that essentially enables you to become the best version of yourself and that it, it really has a very kind of powerful ability to draw that out. So I'm actually really excited about education. I think ultimately this is going to be one of the most fruitful and interesting things. And this is it's going to be education right from primary school, right up until you know the very sort of end of life. People are going to be learning in new ways and they're going to be helped on this journey by AI. I think that's really interesting because Education is one of the industries, and I guess schools are some of the organisations that need to think about what are they bringing to the table in a kind of world of AI where expertise is getting increasingly democratised. You know, what is the role of a financial advisor, say, or a lawyer in a world where potentially people can access that sort of information much more easily themselves? And it kind of flips the value proposition of a lot of industries, I think, on their head, and that's what we need to be thinking about as well going forward. Well, yeah, I mean, I, this is where it comes back to this idea of uh, artificially capable uh, intelligence. So, you know, just, just to sort of talk about that, and this is something that, you know, Mustafa and I have, have really discussed a lot when writing the book and, and um, is an important idea. So, you know, what, what you have kind of at the bottom of this this whole sort of revolution that we're in is, is machine learning, which is the form of AI that, you know, is, is dominant. So you've got machine learning. Then above that, you've got this idea of AI, you know, really, which is the kind of basic artificial intelligence systems that we're seeing today. And by basic, I mean GPT-4 and that sort of level. They're frontier models, but they're, they're still a huge limits to what they can do. And then typically people have kind of gone from there right up to AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, and then up, up, upwards of that, Super Intelligence. So AGI is when you have an AI that is that can do the full range of tasks that a human do to the same, to the same standard that a human would do it. And then Super Intelligence far beyond that. But a lot of people believe once you get to AGI, 
it can build an AI system probably better than a human, that can build and so on, and you have an intelligence explosion up to a superintelligence. And you know, so there's a lot of discussion of that, and then there's a lot of discussion of AI as it is now. But what's the bridge? And the bridge is artificially capable intelligence, and that's where we have these agents that are gonna do things. And I would genuinely, genuinely think that two of the first uses will be as lawyers and as financial advisors, because um, you know there's just clearly that these things, um, as, as I'm sure we all know, do cost money, um, and it's just the kind of thing that an artificial intelligence would be able to do very effectively. You know, there's no reason why you can't have an AI system that hasn't ingested every single law and precedent in the world. Um, and can have a very kind of profound and immediate understanding in a way that even the most um, effective law firm could never hope to um, imagine. Of course, the difficulty is, you know, you might have that, but, you know, uh, lawyers, financial advisors, all pretty good at kind of actually maintaining position in society, you know? You might, might be able to have um, a system that gives you very good legal advice, whether that will actually be something that you'd ever trust unknown. But I think you have to start from the assumption that professional services like that, the first port of call will always be an AI, um, that all of what professional organizations are doing will be driven by AI, but that there's still going to be a role for the human, just as schools are not going to go away. I actually don't think law firms are going to go away in the near term. Um, nor any kind of financial institutions, there's just going to be a very kind of huge change in, in what a lot of people are doing on a day to day basis. Longer term, however, I think, you know, once, once things have just worked through, once that we have, I don't know, sort of, let's say, regulatory turmoil and the full potential of the technology, long term, I just don't know what the future looks like. And I think everyone always sort of feels like, you know, either everything's just going to be completely different or the status quo can hold on. What I actually think is that there'll be sort of change, 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 change. Things will look a bit the same, a bit different, but just at some point of AI, just the power of the technology does just mean that the, the models that exist today and the, the sort of jobs that we have today at the high professional end, it is just going to totally transform. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to hear about what, what you guys sort of see as how, in 20 years' time, what it is you'll be doing. But well, I would I genuinely <laughs> be interested in how you envisage that. Well, I was going, I was going to ask you, because I, I thought of the Bletchley Park thing, that, that it was Elon Musk who stole the show at the end, when, you know, when he said uh, the world without work is, is, is a reality, in his view. I don't know if you agree with that. But based on what you said so far, that's, that does suggest that you believe at some point that most tasks ultimately can be eliminated by artificial intelligence. Is that, is that right? Um, well, yes. Well, a lot of tasks. So this is where it gets interesting, because tasks are not jobs and roles. Mm. And a role sort of transcends mm. even the, the kind of tasks that make it up. And that's this distinction that has, has given a lot of comfort to people. Yeah, because tasks are far more automatable than roles. Um, but roles kind of take the sum of a human to really um, work. But I think it's, it's really um, just wishful thinking mm. to think that um, there's something just ineffable about a role that, that 
you cannot kind of recreate ultimately if you you don't kind of you know essentially tasks are tasks in an organization and the number of roles in an organization that really are just just about a kind of you know slightly nebulous but nonetheless essential role is always going to be quite small actually so you know maybe 10%, maybe 5%, maybe 1% of an organization staff have these kind of roles that really can just never kind of be replaced. Um, whatever it is, let's say even if it's 10%, that's still a sort of a shocking kind of social situation where you might see 90% of roles in a lot of organizations slowly disappearing over, um, let's call it a 20 year time frame. You know, that's really not enough time for our societal systems to adapt so it is just an immense challenge you really um, think you really think it could be that quick um yeah. i think 20, 20 years cer yeah, certainly yeah. Okay. i mean ju just no doubt um you know that in in 20 years time you know the idea that we're not going to have um systems that could do most of what human beings can do I, I would find it strange. Given what's happened in the last five, mm. 20 seems like an awfully long time. I mean, I, 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 yeah. a, a Sam Altman quote from, from a podcast he recently did was a long and beautiful exponential curve of growing prosperity, right. which is probably quite an optimistic take on the world <laughs> we've got ahead of us, because yeah. I, I think your point on social dislocation is quite an important part of that. Well, but, but equally it's important to say that, um, you know, a actually, AI could lead to sort of a, a phenomenal increase in economic growth. And, you know, so um, e even if we, um, from here as, as a sort of world, just slow to, and this is something that we, we researched in the book, if, if we had something like a third of the amount of economic growth over the next 50 years as in the last 50 years, you know, the world is still going to be a sort of $300 trillion economy in 50 years' time. So, you know, even if we have drastically slowed economic growth, we're going to be a far, far richer planet um, than we are now. And, you know, that does create huge opportunities. And, you know, so there's a lot of, that, you know, AI could plausibly, therefore, you know, we're not talking about going to 10% growth, as some people are, which would, you know, see us quickly reach an economy, you know, in 50 years' time, far, 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 far bigger. Just actually talking about a sort of relatively modest productivity in increase, um, which certainly seems plausible, um, AI could still be delivering trillions and trillions of extra into the global economy every year that, you know, would presumably be going somewhere. And thus it is a kind of question for governments about how that money is distributed and where it sits. And that, that I think, is a, is a fascinating question because can the demands of a capitalist system and where that wealth will be concentrated cope with this change because clearly that that will potentially accrue to a relatively small number of people right. who are the owners and architects of these AIs uh, and the correct deployers of them and, and that I don't know how far you get particularly I think we should bring in the, 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 the great work on synthetic biology here because I think the two colliding yeah. and we would add in things like blockchain and tokenization which are also happening at the same time mm. the danger is this gets very concentrated very quickly yeah so well it, it's yeah it's perhaps worth um, just sort of going back a bit and, and thinking about this idea that in the book we're talking about of, of a coming wave of technology and AI is 
is the centerpiece of this wave of technology. Um, but it is far broader. And I mean, I, I certainly always thought that, you know, just talking about AI is, is and as is the commonly the case in the world at the minute, everyone's focusing on it, is missing a huge amount of what's going on. And so the advances that are happening in, in biology, biotech right now are, are staggering as well, often driven by machine learning. You know, the complexity of biology as a field is just so mind boggling. It's far beyond a sort of human brain to actually kind of, you know, conceptualize something like the immune system. Um, it's, it's just so intricate. But it's perfect for machine learning and AI-driven approaches. And so we're really getting this incredibly fine-grained understanding of biology, but now also the ability to use that to program and build biology. And, you know, it's an extraordinary thought that life itself is becoming a kind of malleable platform for us to build on and to change. Um, and of course, the implications of this are, are staggering for what it means as human beings that we could now start to edit our genomes and create new kinds of human or plug ourselves directly into computers um, for healthcare and everything around that is, is going to be changing. And then also just the material world generally, we've got a kind of a new source of stuff and a way of interacting with the world through bi biotech. The other one that I would really highlight is robotics. So, you know, a lot of people in AI have, have long believed that robotics is going to be a kind of another critical element in this. Because if you think about human beings and our intelligence, it's embodied intelligence. And you can't, you know, we're not brains in vats. All of our intelligence is, is not just driven by a sort of processing engine. It's driven by emotions. It's driven by us as beings in the world and our relationship with the physical world. And a lot of people have always thought that a, a missing link for AI is going to be when they have something similar. Not, not saying it's going to be a, a, a direct analogy, but there'll be some relationship between this kind of physical instantiation. And you know, what, so what we're seeing now is that um, machine learning is, is solving some of the hard problems in robotics, just as it's solving the hard problems in biology. So you know, for, for decades, um, robots might be able to help build a car, but ask a robot to pick up an egg off the floor, which you know one-year-old could do, and it would just crush the egg. Incredibly hard problem of feedback and dexterity and so on. But it's, it's actually machine learning driven approaches that are managing to solve this. And so now we are starting to see that, that robotics is falling in price very fast, not as fast as sort of a Moore's law exponential process, but still fast enough to be significant. Um, even as um, its capabilities are starting to kind of hit the promise of, you know, the 1950s dream of sort of, you know, humanoid helpers. I think it was uh, Vinod Kostler, the um, investor the other day, said he thinks that in 20 to 30 years there'll be one billion humanoid robots in the world. Um, and again, like, that's the kind of thing. I mean, it almost sounds science fiction, doesn't it, to talk about that. But... Um, Imagine you were somebody, um, let's say, in, out in the world in, I don't know, 1890. And, you know, there are a couple of motor cars in, um, you know, in Germany. And they're these very kind of funny things with, with three wheels. And, you know, they don't really work on the roads. Someone tells you that, um, you know, in 50 they, they, they years They were electric, time, I think. Well, they were oh, they, very first some, yeah. No, those, yeah. but those might, these, you know, these are still internal combustion sure. engine. 
Um, and someone said to you, yeah, in, in 50 years' time, there's going to be a billion of these. You might have thought that was crazy, but of course, the world we live in is that world, even though it's slightly more than 50 years. Um, but, you know, the capability of the economy is, is so much greater now. It's not, to me, absurd that there'll be a billion humanoid robots. Why would they be humanoid um, rather than specialised good shapes ah, for whatever they're doing? That's a very good question. And the answer is because the entire world that we've built and the economy that we've built is completely adapted to humanoid form. So, you know, you can't have, um, you know, a, a robot that goes into a warehouse. It, it, you, you can create specialised ones. So if you can create a specialised environment, um, then it, it works. And there you will have non-humanoid. But for so many tasks and things, it makes sense to have a humanoid robot only because that's the world that we've built. And that's why people think it's so important. And the, the, the breakthrough is, you know, we, we have tons... I mean, there are tons of robots out there already, but they look like arms or they look like just m m mobile platforms or, or whatever. But, you know, for it to become a kind of general purpose... Um, helper and you know again talk about disruption you know if there are a billion humanoid robots then immediately you know our, our whole notions of war of peace of a economically productive factory everything in this world has has changed from the one that we knew and in, in your book you write about uh, democratization and uh, these new technologies leading to the empowerment of the individual and how that changes the power balance, but also some elements of centralization. So it's a, it's a bit of both. How will the world change if all this technology becomes available basically to everyone? Well, yeah, so, you know, th this is, is one of the big themes of, of the book is, and it's, it's essentially a contradiction. And, you know, we, we always sort of wanted to be really open about this. Um, the future looks really contradictory because you have these different trends working at the same time. And we all just, you know, the world contains lots of different narratives that all kind of slot together. And so on the one hand, um, this coming wave of technology could lead to like, will lead to immense centralization. You know, we're already seeing that um, the most powerful AI models exist in a handful of organizations organizations and the, the actually ability to kind of build a new frontier model it's not that widely distributed at all there may be five to ten organizations can produce a world-leading ai model from scratch and that's it and you know as as the capabilities get more advanced that may go down but what we're also seeing is that within months sometimes weeks other people are recreating those models and making them open source and then everyone effectively has those models. And we've never been in, a, in, I don't think, in a technological environment where you have such kind of, well, we, we've had that kind of extraordinary concentration of, of the, the frontier in nation states, let's say with nuclear technology. But what we didn't then have was that just being open sourced and spread everywhere around the world within months. And that brings us to, to a really important question on containment. And, and, and the risk associated. We're going to have a large number of large language models which are um, not, not properly tested, potentially, and, or, or not properly contained. And one of the parts of the book which I thought was really important, but, but actually clearly quite challenging to write, was 
what what forms of containment? You know, how how do we get alignment? How do we how do we actually manage this thing going forward? Because it it seems like a, a a step, and, and I think the book talks about how hard it was to contain nuclear weapons and how many near misses we've had along the way. And that's, that's the best we've done. And there are many examples yeah. of being a lot worse. Yeah, so actually, until um, January of this year, the, the book's title was Containment is Not Possible. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and, and which was a line of Mustafa's, and, you know, in one, one of our earliest conversations about this, that, you know, that, that was, you know, just put out there. And, you know, we're trying to say that um, containing all of this technology is just such a, such a challenge, because, one, in history, the number of technologies, as you say, that have ever been contained is, is minimal. Um, you know, the, the dominant pattern of human existence has been technologies diffusing around the world uncontrollably. Yeah. Um, and even where they haven't, yeah, the nuclear case being, being the most obvious, we've not really done a great job. You know, we're all still here, so that's good. Um, but actually, there's a lot to be quite frightened about. And there's no way AI is ever going to be contained uh, as nuclear was, because it's just a very different thing, you know. It's, it's ultimately software, and it can travel around the world instantaneously. Um, the incentives behind building it are so huge as well. You know, if, if it's not going to be the US, it's going to be the Chinese. And actually, even if, if they back off, because, you know, it, it frightens the Chinese as much as it does anyone, um, somebody else is going to come in. There's just too many things going on. So this idea of containing it is just extremely hard. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge truly without precedent in, in that we have this sort of almighty prize that's there that is probably within reach, but it has all kinds of unpredictable effects that, that you know, could extend to the catastrophic. And we have to find ways of keeping it boxed in. And so, you know, we, we think that it's saying containment is not possible is a provocation. It's, it's trying to highlight how difficult this is going to be but it also must be possible you know for us to have any kind of optimism as a species we have to make it work and, you know we, we have done things in the past that should give us some cause for uh, optimism here you know whether it's the Montreal protocol that bans CFCs or whether it's the fact that you know actually um, there are a limited number of nuclear weapons. Um, or but we haven't even got a common code of human ethics as, as a starting point so and or, or agree on simple things like sustainability. Which mm. so so the yeah. idea that suddenly we're going to come up with a pre-packed set of guardrails feels a long way off. That we're not going to do. But you know what what will hopefully happen is that we'll keep nudging progress forward on a number of axes. So people will be making technical improvements. People will be creating new audit mechanisms. Um, the regulation will kind of keep moving forward in, in an intelligent way. You know, even a few weeks ago now, um, the US and China have actually opened a track to negotiate just on AI, which, um, you know, is a very kind of positive sign. So are we going to get, um, we're, we're not going to get this. These are human values. This is what we need to protect. This is what we need to put into the system to align it. That's just not going to happen. And we're not, we're not also going to have this situation where it's like, right, Globally, we're going to pause AI development. That's it for synthetic biology. That's not going to happen. What we hopefully will see are 
the fact is containment is like a puzzle with all of these different pieces and hopefully there are going to be enough people pushing forward different elements as we go that it adds up to something meaningful. Are you an optimist or a pessimist about it? Um, I truly vacillate. And I, anyway, so I, I would say, um, and, and you know, this, this was a funny experience writing the book because, you know, and, and I, again, I don't want to speak for the stuff of my co-author, but I think we both vacillate between being very positive, being, you know, somewhat less techno-optimist. Um, I would say I'm more optimistic than not, but with serious caveats around that. Um, and part of the reason is, is I actually just, to go back to the, an earlier point, I think the challenges that our society faces are grave, that if we didn't have this coming, I, I would worry about where we're going to end up. So I don't think, I think without it, we're, we have problems. My quick straw poll, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Michael, how, how do you see the opportunity? But you're optimistic and pessimistic in the book, and I see it uh, also changing from one chapter to the next. How, how, do, how do you see the opportunity uh, to contain the technology with itself? So to use AI and synthetic biology to contain itself. So you have some examples like a virus attack that can become much more intelligent and morph, and but so so can the defenses or deep fakes. Uh, but you can have digital fingerprints or zero-knowledge proofs uh, to uh, check if it's authentic. So, so can technology be one part of the solution? Uh, absolutely critical. Um, so, you know, I, I think there is, it, it's completely essential that that's going to be part of it. And, and in, in two ways. Um, one is that, you know, the more kind of advanced we get, the more um, it, you can create defensive technologies, you know, so for every new sort of offensive actor that you might build, you, you can create something that stops it. You know, one kind of big worry about AI is, you know, you can create and manufacture any kind of viruses, yes, but then you might be able to find ways of spotting that and eliminating it, creating vaccines incredibly quickly, so on and so on. So you can create um, defensive measures. Um, but then also you can start building in safeguards. So, you know, one thing that they're looking at now, for example, is kind of provably safe AI, where, you know, the, the safety features are not just kind of bolt-on, but they're, they're mathematically encoded mm. into the system from the start. So, again... Um, Actually, can I ask you something? Yeah. Going back to your point about the ethics piece, which I think is a super interesting question. I mean, could you, in theory, code ethics into AI? For example, thou shalt not kill, if you put it that way, right? Could you code it in such a way that implicit in AI as it evolves is the assumption that you should not kill humans? Well, that, that's the old sort of Isaac Asimov yeah, point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously he came up, you know, this is in, in the 50s or earlier, he yeah. came up with the three laws of robotics, which is sort of this exact thing. Um, and, you know, what, what his stories are is, is how very quickly when you start encoding those kind of things in, um, you, you start to run into problems and contradictions. Mm. And so it's actually quite dangerous to kind of put in these explicit instructions. Okay. Um, but yes, you would definitely do that. But, but there are kind of cleverer ways of doing it. So, um, you know, how you do that is you, you, you know, people like Stuart Russell, who's a mm. famous Berkeley um, computer science professor, um, you know, he's looking at ways for systems to learn on their own what is, is right. And then it's just, just as a system kind of, you know, learns what, what token to output, it learns not to do certain things. And so in that sense, it is hardwired into the system. But, you know, yeah, this is the great challenge of, of AI safety. 
And, and you don't want all the alignment to be done by Ivy League preppy boys who've all, all, all grown up the same way. So the world could become a lot more nuanced because we'll all have our own AI, but you, don't, you want it to be nuanced for everybody, not for just an elite few. Yeah, that's true. Which is, but I, you I, still have to find your kind of baseline things, which, you know, um, if, if, if you're, you know, again, one thing that didn't really go into the book that we, we sort of discussed and, and is part of thinking, you know, if you're a terrorist, you don't wake up thinking, I'm, I'm a bad guy, I'm a terrorist. You wake up thinking, I'm fighting on the side of right. And what I'm doing is ethical. You know, everyone believes that what they're doing is ethical. So, you know, and, and so if people can code, you know, their own ethics into AI, that is also well, this, a problem. This is the challenge of, of alignment, but, right? Yeah. yeah, but, you know, or, yeah. you know should, should, who, who's, who's, whose ethics is right? And this is, is the challenge of uh, alignment, and it's... It's a human problem and a technical problem. And it brings down the cost of war massively. Oh, exactly. The costs, the risks, the triggers. Um, y yeah, you know, and, and, and actually what I, what I think is the, the greatest risk in the war side is, is the costs go down, but so do too does, does the potential for misunderstanding. Because, you know, essentially if you, you have systems that are lethal autonomous weapons and, you know, they have kind of strike capability autonomously, you never quite will be able to unpick what was the trigger for an event. And, you know, imagine there are entire national arsenals that are effectively controlled by AIs. You know, we don't know whether, on the one hand, is that going to eliminate war because they just decide who's going to win and there are various science fiction novels premised on that. So, you know, they just run all the calculations and say, ah, oh, yep, you know, oh, well, yep, the Americans have got it. Um, or does it actually kind of just create opaque decisions that are never fully transparent to anyone where, you know, suddenly the missiles are out of the silos. We don't know, it's so dangerous. So Niels, you invest in a lot of these businesses, you know the sector really well from an investment perspective. Just talk to me about how you see the investment opportunity evolving and, you know, and, and I want to conclude with whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. Yeah, I tend to be an optimist uh, and uh, so think, th uh, one analogy that I uh, like uh, to use is if you think about uh, a time, and you also refer to that in your book, when nearly everybody was working in agriculture and then suddenly came automation. Um, and what happened is that, of course, people did other things and uh, what they, some, some things that were not valued at the time, suddenly they were valued and suddenly you could be a scientist and that was not possible before. So the optimist uh, in me uh, wants to think, that, yes, there will be huge change and will be faster than ever because these other changes, they took centuries or decades, and now here we talk about the next 10 or 20 years. So the, the speed uh, will be the biggest challenge in my view. Um, but the optimist in me uh, uh, wants to say that, um, yes, there will be huge changes in tasks and roles and how they will be done, but uh, we will have things that will be valued up, like uh, a kindergarten teacher or a nurse, which I believe should be valued much more today, and I believe I see the opportunity that with these technology, uh, technological changes, just two examples, these type of rules that exist already, they will be valued up. But then other rules where people do things, it's not even a job today, and then they're not paid for it, maybe it becomes a job and they will be paid for it. So that's, that's, what, that's what the optimist in me wants to see. What, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I do broadly agree. Um, it's, I, I think you're right, it's just, there's gonna be lots of changes that come at a pace. And, you know, I think we, 
we've seen that any society struggles to adapt to huge changes. So it's just going to be the speed of it. And, and I, I completely agree that um, roles that are currently not valued highly enough could become more valued um, and that new roles can be created. But it's just getting the equation of it all to work out at a kind of net positive is going to require immensely skillful governance. So, you know, we're going to need incredibly competent governments everywhere around the world acting in an extremely enlightened, informed way. And, you know, so that's a big ask. Do you think the right people are kind of aware of the level of disruption and risk and also opportunity in this? Because I think it's great that AI safety comes up more and more and clearly there's more and more research going into it, although not at the level it probably needs to be. Um, but do you think in, for example, like political and business circles, there's that appreciation yet? So I think one thing that, you know, we, we were watching all of this as we were writing the book, we're watching the story gather pace. Um, and, you know, things were moving very fast on the tech side. On, one of the things that surprised me the most since we started writing the book in a very positive way is how AI has rocketed up the agenda. And if you'd asked me two years ago whether, you know, President Biden would be signing executive orders on AI, I wouldn't have believed that. I wouldn't have thought it was possible that we'd see such a sort of policy response that, you know, suddenly we'd have governments and tech companies all around the world, you know, at one summit where, you know, this is really on the agenda of world leaders, um, where, you know, it's something that every government is actually talking about. You've got the EU really pushing things through. Then suddenly you've got the French and German governments maybe putting the brakes on, but it just shows because they're so now engaged in AI. So I think actually one of the most extraordinary stories is not just that the technology has moved fast, it's that the government policy and business response from everyone has been far bigger than I would have thought. So that is a cause for optimism. Mm. Alex, pessimist or optimist? Oh, definitely optimistic, Peter. For um, public markets? Yeah, public markets, I mean, one has to be, right? But I, I definitely am, it's so exciting this wave of innovation. I, I found the book, I love the book actually, because it is really balanced. It, on the one hand, and you talk about pessimism aversion, I think, in the book, which I, it was a concept that I, I really do think is important. It, my inclination is obviously just to focus on the positives, the innovation, the dynamic, but actually you need to think about containment a lot. But you've got, you've got to come away thinking that we will find a solution to this. I had a huge argument with my family at the weekend about climate change because they said that wouldn't AI ultimately conclude that the worst thing for the planet were human beings and therefore eliminate human beings? And my view was it will never go that far because we'll find a way to resolve the climate crisis and the system will recognise that and it will be circu you know, the circularity will be positive. So it was very much it was a really interesting discussion and obviously I lost that particular discussion in a family. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Is is puts and takes, but you've got to be optimistic about the opportunity set. I think ultimately. Um. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, um, I, I doubt that, you know, if, if we built um, an AI system that sort of looks at the, the climate crisis from that perspective, then, you know, that, that is a huge failure of design. Mm. Um, you know, actually, I think it's far more likely that if we have a kind of runaway AI, 
you know, would it would it really care about that? It's probably off doing other things. You know, it's at that point. It's mm. you know, one would hope that it it's sort of gone to conduct some vast cosmic experiments and so on. And humanity is a detail. Um, it's far more likely, I think, that in climate terms, um, AI is a huge positive right. because you know it's clear that trying to sort of adapt our our economy and lifestyle at the speed that perhaps is desirable or even necessary. It's just such a tall order that unless we have new kind of techniques and ideas and, and means to implement things coming in, it's just, it's just such an almighty challenge. So, you know, we need, we need fusion power, but it's this incredibly intricate technological puzzle. So actually, if, some, if we can start having tools that help deliver that, bam, yeah. you know, we might have solved the energy problem. Um, we need to increase that. So in, in almost every way, I think, AI makes me feel more positive about how we're going to fare environmentally, even if a lot of it is still nebulous. It's not quite clear what it'll do. I just have this sense that we need, we need things that are going to move us beyond where we are now. And the fact is, we can't really envisage all of the solutions to these questions. And that's where AI will help by enabling us to do that. Michael, can I ask you a question? The coming wave that you described, will that be the last wave of technology progress ever? Because um, if we th think about the next 20, 30 years, there can be this point of ever increasing artificial intelligence, super intelligence, singularity, progress and innovation becomes uh, instantaneous. Uh, everything happens in one day, everything will be invented in one day. Um, so is, is this the last wave? I mean, very good question, and the, the truth is we, we just don't know, and you know, it's always interesting to me that, um, that the term that people use um, about superintelligence is the singularity, and, you know, which brings to mind a black hole, and the whole point in a black hole is around the event horizon, you don't really know, you have no information. And so I think it's similar with, with really super advanced AI. Once we get to that point, it's just pure speculation, and you know, in, in the book we're quite careful not to go to that point. We're always staying this side of the sort of superintelligence. Um, however, we do slightly posit that the next wave after this one would probably be some kind of nanotechnology. So, you know, where it's not just sort of biology, it's kind of all, all kind of atomic level matter becomes a platform for creation. And that that, some, something to do with that level of manipulation of, of physical matter would be the wave beyond the wave. But that, it's that so takes speculative. More, that takes more time, that can't be done in a yeah, day. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of yeah. need this wave in yeah. order to get to a place where that is even conceivable. But you know, yeah. that, that's really, again, it's so speculative that we don't know. I mean, my, my hunch would be more likely that, well, I think what we can say is, is if this wave is, is arriving as, as we think is extremely probable, then the world is essentially changed. And rules that have seemed like sort of almost innate rules of history are probably going out of the window. And so perhaps to think in terms of these technological waves that have defined human existence for tens of thousands of years, since the very beginning, in fact, to think of it in those terms is no longer appropriate. Charlotte, optimist or pessimist? Um. I think on an existential level, I'm an optimist. I think we'll find a way to make it work because I think we have to and, and I, I genuinely believe that we will. I think 
on the pessimistic side, there will be casualties along the way. Um, <clears throat> when you think about things that are written about in the book of kind of bad actors using AI to be able to kind of enact negative events at such big scale, I do think that that is likely. And I, I don't know how we'll avoid that. Obviously, I hope we can avoid it to the greatest degree possible. But I think bad things happen in the world today and AI means that that can be amplified. But the social challenges we've got in the world today are going to be, the, for me, the thing which comes to the fore. Yeah. Uh, Mark, can I ask, to, to conclude, a slightly more parochial question. DeepMind was a, was a UK company, uh, fantastic, you know, based just down the road and, and, and much of the thinking that, that went in. UK is ranked third, but behind two huge superpowers in the world in AI. Do you think it could have been different and had AI been able to raise the money in the UK to, to start growing itself properly, that this could have been much more a UK-driven business? Um, well, you know, I, I, say, I you know, if I, I'm commenting on DeepMind, really it's just an observer. I mean, um, so I think the answer is probably not. I don't think there was a route whereby the UK alone would have ever hosted one of the world's leading AI labs, just because the talent, the compute, everything, it requires, you know, enormous amounts of capital. And most of that exists in the US. Um, so I, I think it's a nice thought, but it's, it's not necessarily a surprise that until, you know, recently, France, Germany, UK, even Japan, South Korea, none of these companies countries has had one of the leading labs. So I think it, it seems implausible to me that it would have happened. A, a great shame, because it, I think it would be brilliant for Britain um, if we did have a sort of homegrown thing. DeepMind is still based in London, so I think it's a huge positive for Britain anyway. Um, and actually all the other big AI labs are opening here, and there are still homegrown companies coming through. So, you know, actually, we should just be encouraging that, doing everything we can to make sure that more companies start, that there's scale-up funding available. Um, yeah, I don't think we're, we're going to necessarily expect to have OpenAI founded here, existing here, but I think we should have companies that are competitive with the next layer down and beyond. So, Thank you for a fantastic conversation. We've been just touching on both both timeliness of, of the publication of the book, but also many of the thoughts inside it. But, uh, lots of food for thought, so really grateful for you coming in today. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, please head to schroders.com forward slash insights. And we're endeavouring to record as many of these shows in the studio on video. If you want to watch them in their full unabridged version, uh, then go to Schroder's YouTube channel. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Schroder's podcast at schroders.com. And remember, you can listen, subscribe and review the Investor Download wherever you get your podcasts. New shows drop every Thursday at 5pm UK time. But above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up. And investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. 